My name is Jim Kaplan. I'm a, a lawyer, a previous walking tour guide. I'm the past president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association and now an active writer for the New York Almanac, the New York City Correspondent. Uh, this uh, article is uh, one of, I've actually done about 18 over the last six years. Uh, this article is about the South Street Seaport and the current controversy over a proposed uh, building by the Howard Hughes Corporation, which would exceed uh, the current zoning requirements. The future of New York City's South Street Seaport Historic District. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Jim Kaplan, an attorney and a founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. His article on South Street Seaport recently appeared in New York Almanac. Jim Kaplan joins us from time to time to discuss historic issues in New York City. I'm really glad you brought this up. By this, I mean South Street Seaport. In all honesty, I've never been there exactly, gone to South Street Seaport Historic District. I'd like to start by asking you what South Street Seaport was in history, why is that an important place? Well, the South Street Seaport, which is on the east side of uh, Lower Manhattan, was in the early 19th century, uh, up until uh, probably around the Civil War or thereafter, the major shipping port of New York City. It was there that the clipper ships, the sailing ships, uh, birthed and went, and it was a very, very active center for the city's commerce. Uh, mm-hmm. And the city, over the uh, after the opening of the Erie Canal, certainly became the center of shipping in many ways in the United States. So most goods went to and through the South Sea Seaport on the, the tall clipper ships, as they were called. So it was very, very important in the city's history. There was a a shipping line, I thought it was interesting in your story, called the Black Ball Line, and they came up with, what a concept, of uh, sending ships across the Atlantic from Europe to America on a schedule. I guess people didn't do that at first. You know, they would just send a ship from Europe when it got full. Yeah, people would wait. You would have to wait for... uh a ship to fill up its hole uh, with goods from uh, before it went to Europe. And th- that, in many ways, uh, created problems because you didn't know exactly when the ship was going to go or if it was going to go. In, ni- in 1818, a group of uh, Quaker shipments led by a guy named Jeremiah Wright came up with the idea that they would send the ship from New York to Liverpool on a fixed schedule, whether it was half full or not half full. In fact, right dramatically on the, the sailing of the first ship opened his hull and showed that it was only half full. But that mm-hmm. proved very, very important uh, because it meant that a merchant in New York or elsewhere would know when the ship was leaving and thus could be sure that his goods would get there on a fixed schedule. Even more important was that without, uh, before the transatlantic cable, information would come from Europe on a fixed schedule. So it gave New York merchants in many ways a significant advantage over merchants in other parts of the country 
because they got the information on conditions in Europe, whether mm-hmm. uh, the wars, whatever, uh, uh, first. So, so that was a. Uh, it was really a more, even more the information that was important as so much as the uh, passing of the ships. That that proved to be a very important innovation. Mm-hmm. Of course, once the transatlantic cable mm-hmm. came in, it was less important. No, nothing is forever, though. And and when and why did the South Street Seaport area decline? Well, uh, there was much more competition in the uh, late 19th century from other modes of transportation, particularly railroads. Uh, steamships were better berthed on the west side of Manhattan on the docks. So it was uh, South Street was a very good protected port for sailing ships. So little by little, commerce began to uh, migrate, you might say, to the the west side of Manhattan, as well as uh, uh, things became, uh, from an information standpoint, with the uh, transatlantic cable, that became more important. uh, uh, And uh, so it slowly began to decline. It didn't decline immediately. They were still, uh, even into the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, sailing ships that were used for cargo, and the area was still something of a, uh, a shipping area, but not as significantly as it had been in the early part of the century. And when it did decline, the adjacent financial district kind of compensated uh, by growing, right? Yeah. Well, the importance of the the, the shipping district in the uh, uh, in the early nineteenth century. Uh, really dovetailed with the growth of the financial district on Wall Street, particularly after Andrew Jackson's veto of the Second Bank of the United States in the 1830s. Uh, In a sense, the financial capital of the country shifted uh, to Wall Street. And this was very much tied in with the fact that much of the, that uh, South Street was the shipping center. So, uh, you know, you, you had financing and uh, insurance and things that were were right adjacent to it. So that was uh, uh, quite important. Obviously, well, Wall Street did grow until, uh, uh, I would say, by 1900, it was probably the center of the financial industries in the, in the United States uh, uh, with the New York Stock Exchange, uh, uh, which I think opened around it. Uh, and, and really going about 1817. But, uh, 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 and uh, so in a sense, you might say that South Street was eclipsed uh, by Wall Street. Uh, mm-hmm. And that continued until the, the, the crash of 1929. Uh, there was a great growth on Wall Street in the period from 1920 to 1929 with individual investment. Uh, and that came to a halt with the 29 crash. Mm -hmm. But then there was a rebound after World War II? Yes, after World War II in the early 50s with the growth of so-called people's capitalism, uh, the idea of individual investment in common stocks, uh, which had uh, uh, kind of fallen into disrepute after the crash of the 29, came back. And uh, Wall Street began to come back as a, uh, the financial district, as, as a strong center of, uh, uh, A, the, the stock exchange grew dramatically, and, and also some of the major banks like Citibank and Chase uh, 
uh, you know, became more important. And uh, uh, so it was, in a sense, the boom of Wall Street was back, particularly by the late 60s. What was the South Street area like, though, in, in 1960? Well, in 1960, it was mostly uh, kind of decrepit buildings. There were still probably a few old line sailing ships, or uh, uh, but it, it, it was uh, very much in, in decline, and uh, it was considered that it would soon be replaced by uh, high-rise office buildings uh, over in the over a few blocks over in the Wall Street area. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a, a decrepit, uh, dilapidated area. There were still some restaurants like, uh, sweets there, famous seafood restaurants, but, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was, it was believed that it would soon be lost. All right. But then two individuals, uh, maybe changed the course of history. I don't know if it's, that's over dramatic, but. Uh, they stepped up to the plate in 1967. Peter and Norma Stanford? Peter and Norma Stanford. Peter was a, an advertising executive. I said in my article incorrectly. He was a Wall Street executive uh, and an avid sailor. He was from Connecticut. He loved sailing and loved ships. And, uh, uh, and he saw this area and he said, you know, this really could be a dramatic uh, uh, museum like Mystic or some of the other Museums. It said that he went to the San Francisco Maritime Museum and thought that we could really do this here on, on South Street. Uh, so he formed the South Street Seaport Museum, whose purpose was to educate New Yorkers about their maritime past. And his concept was there would be a living museum from the area's buildings and piers. Uh, perhaps they would acquire sailing ships or tall ships as a uh, you know, for really tourist purposes, uh, and uh, uh, that the idea of the living museum was it would be right near Wall Street or right near Lower Manhattan, so it'd be kind of mm-hmm. a, an organic museum, unlike uh, you know something like uh, Williamsburg or Plymouth, which is you know uh, standalone, and pe- people working on Wall Street could visit the museum at their lunchtime. Yeah. And I guess. Uh, probably a lot of Americans are, are like me in this regard. I really noticed this, I mean, years and years ago, when, when the, our nation had the bicentennial in 1976, all these tall ships came to uh, South Street Seaport, didn't they? Yes. Uh, the uh, Well, New York in the early 70s uh, was in terrible shape, particularly with the economic fiscal crisis of 1975. And many people thought the city was finished economically, including uh, Felix Rowden, who was one of the leaders of the... Uh, uh, um, but the South Street Seaport Museum, uh, headed by uh, PR, public relations head named Frank Brainerd, organized this concept of Operation Sail, where he would bring tall sailing ships from around the world, from different countries, uh, France and... and uh, uh, Italy and uh, Germany and uh, uh, Norway, and he would have them all visit the uh, United States, i.e. South Street, uh, around the time of uh, the bicentennial on July 4th, uh, 
1976. And, and I think that was a huge success. Uh, and it, I think it created inspiration for many of the spirited New Yorkers who believe that the city, by looking to its past, could find a way to a more prosperous future. Uh, I really mm. view that as a psychological turning point out of, out of the, the doldrums of the fiscal crisis. There's a historic district called the South Street Seaport Historic District. And again, I've never been there. There's also a museum. Is there a museum where you look at artifacts from the sailing ship days? Well, the South Street Seaport Museum, there is a museum. There was always a museum from... Uh, I think the, the key in its initial, uh, or its heyday, was the ships. There was the Peking and the Waver Tree. The Peking's been sold off, but the Waver Tree is still there. And, you know, people could go on the ships. And uh, uh, But, yes, there is a museum, and there are other things like the Bound uh, Printing Press and, and other parts of the museum. It's sort of like a, a museum uh, district. You, you definitely should go there if you haven't been. Uh, and I think around that time, the idea was that they would uh, create a historic district which would prevent further large development in the area uh and uh there that happened i think uh, most recently uh in 1982 there was a, a zoning resolution that said you couldn't build a building more than 12 stories there now uh which is basically the nub of the controversy today mm. uh uh uh, the idea was to preserve the uh, historic district the way it was in the way Stanford intended. Mm-hmm. Stanford, by the way, was ultimately, in a sense, thrown out of the district um, and moved to Brooklyn because uh, uh, other people in the city government, among others, thought that you know they should try to develop the area in a more uh, commercial way like uh, uh, Fania Hall in, in, in Boston was the example, uh, uh, you know, and this should be generate more revenue for the city. And, uh, uh, and uh, I think Stanford at the end was opposed to that. But, uh, hmm. uh, but, uh, but I thought that one of the things that happened, let's say, in the late 70s and 80s was a renewal for lower Manhattan in general as a residential area. Well, I, I think it actually it was a little after that. Lower Manhattan did the, the building of the Chase Building and Marine Building, Marine Medlin Building in the late 50s, and other uh, skyscrapers like 85 Broad Street uh, did begin to develop, but not fully. Uh, some of the older buildings were, were not as attractive as the newer buildings. And some, there was still a movement of uh, commerce to Midtown, which is actually where uh, Citibank and Chase are, uh, are headquartered today. So uh, there became some excess space, particularly in the older buildings on uh, uh, Wall Street. Uh, and a, a group of uh, really immigrant uh, uh, real estate developers, a guy named Zeb Boimelgreen, who was uh, uh, Israeli and by uh, Africa Israel, which was partially backed by the Russians. Amir Sapir, who was a Russian immigrant from uh, uh, Russia, Georgia, noticed that these buildings, these old buildings, uh, 
could be renovated for residences, and that whereas a uh, a uh, commercial building would sell for perhaps four hundred dollars a square foot, uh, a residential building in that area could sell for seven hundred dollars a square foot. Now there was considerable skepticism among people like myself who were there, or as to whether anybody would live down there. But uh, mm-hmm. I think they proved that they, this started, I would say, in the 90s, uh, uh, particularly with the purchase of the J.P. Morgan headquarters at 23 Wall Street, which was a shock or still a shock to me that J.P. Morgan would sell it off to a, a residential developer. Um, and that they created uh, residential units. So uh, throughout the Wall Street area, uh, there's now uh, apparently 70,000 people living south of uh, Canal Street in the Wall Street area, which was unheard of. When I started giving tours there 30 years ago, virtually no one lived there. Uh, but now the example that my uh, uh, co-leader Richard Warshaw and I point out is you'll frequently see women uh, walking dogs. What more important than, you know, the residential thing. Uh, so, so that has been a very uh, significant uh, development. There was also always up at uh, uh, on the very north end, there was a uh, Rachel Lama project called Southbridge Towers, which in a sense has been the center of the opposition to the Howard Hughes project now. Um, but that's really a very significant uh, uh, change in the last, I would say, 25 years in mm-hmm. uh, lower Manhattan. And... Uh, uh, in a way, you could say that the newer uh, residents, full-time residents, may have a slightly different point of view than people like myself who've been there, uh, you know, worked as a lawyer on Wall Street in the commercial buildings uh, for more than 50 years. I don't know how many right. of left now, but... Uh, no. As we come into the new century, into the 2000s, South Street Seaport itself went into decline, did it not? Well, what went into decline, yeah, it wasn't that the museum went into decline. The museum seemed to have difficulties since the heyday of the of 76, and kind of, you might say, finding its footing. They at one point brought in the Rouse Corporation, which had uh, done uh, Fenea Hall in Boston in the hopes that that would generate more revenue, uh, which it apparently didn't. It wasn't, and uh, there was a succession of uh, real estate developers who uh, tried to make a go of it. The museum uh, always had started to have difficulty financing its operations. I, I suppose if you were going to maintain large ships in a museum facility, you know, you needed funding, and uh, funding was not always uh, plentiful in this environment for uh, from uh, public sources. That's the the museum. Uh, decline now in 19 2015 mm-hmm. uh, new management took over I'll talk about that's about the time that the Howard Hughes Corporation took over the museum uh, a fellow named uh, Jonathan Bolwar who was a captain a previous uh, captain Bolwar was a previous uh, uh, sailor uh, and his goal was to revive the seaport museum I know because I was personally involved with them to some extent. Uh, to revive the Seaport Museum into its heyday by bringing ships back from foreign ships. Uh, uh, I was involved with them with the Hermione when uh, 
the French ship that came up New York Harbor. And uh, I remember we uh, had a, at a, a, for our first July 4th parade at the Lower Manhattan Historical Association, uh, we started at the Hermione and, and, and Bolwar gave a stirring speech about how we were going to revive the seaport to its former glory, uh, which I'm all for. Uh, so in any event, uh, the problem, however, has been that, you know, in the current environment, particularly with the pandemic, with Hurricane Sandy and the other problems that there have been in lower Manhattan, not of its making, uh, I mean, originally 9-11, uh, uh, you know, it's been hard to get uh, for certainly public funding for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, well, then let's uh, come up to the present day, if you will, with this uh, proposal from the Howard Hughes Corporation. What do they want to do? Well, the Howard Hughes Corporation, uh, you know, took over about four or five years ago. And there's always been one lot, which is one parking lot at 250 Water Street there. And there was some mystery as to what they were going to do with it. But they recently, like in about... Uh, uh, proposed a plan by Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, uh, uh, which some say was a very attractive plan, uh, conceptual plan, that they would build a tall building, much taller than the zoning permitted. Uh, uh, I think it was 37 stories. Uh, and uh, uh, that would require a certificate of appropriateness from the uh, 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 Landmarks Preservation Committee Commission, and first it would go to the community board. Uh, there was, there was, and perhaps still is, considerable opposition from the uh, community board, which primarily represents uh, the residents there—people from uh, uh, Southbridge Towers, particularly, but. Uh, I think in a way it kind of reminds me of what I once read about the uh, Wyoming land wars where there was a, 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 a dispute between the settlers and, and, and the ranchers. You know, the, uh, mm-hmm. I would say that people like myself who've been in wall street for many, many years uh, are, uh, you know, would tend to favor the Hughes project because it, it offered $50 million subsidy to the South Street Seaport Museum, which I think is critical to the long-term uh, uh, history of uh, the long-term vision, or my vision, of, of Lower Manhattan. Uh, as uh, uh, Kenneth Jackson, who is the, the leading professor, who was a former uh, member of the South Street Seaport Board and, and the New York Historical Society, mentioned in his testimony, uh, uh, look, I mean... Are you saying that you didn't know when you moved into the Wall Street area that there were going to be tall buildings here? I mean, you know, <laughs> that's kind of uh, uh, our attitude or my attitude. And I think other members of the LMHA, although the, we as an organization didn't take a position, a number of us testified at the public hearings, including myself. And you were telling me that recently the Hughes Corporation has modified its proposal? Well, I just got an email this morning that says that the Hughes Corporation, after the hearings, and these hearings were, were, were very interesting. It was, to me, the equivalent of an urban New England town meeting. Uh, there were more than 100 people who spoke at the, at the Landmark Commission hearing, which went on for uh, uh, 
uh, nine hours. Uh, I mean, I remember I had to wait about uh, four or five hours watching everybody else, and I watched the whole thing. And before that, there was a five-hour hearing before the community board, at which I also spoke. Uh, uh, but um, the, uh, I think in response to that, and there was also hearings, uh, at least one uh, public discussion by the Landmarks Commissioners, who, from my point of view, uh, didn't seem to be quite sure what they uh, uh, should do. Some of them felt, as they said in the community board, that this had to be viewed strictly on a, uh, a landmarks on a on an aesthetic view, without regard to the benefits of the to the museum or other people. Uh, there seemed to be at least a few who felt, as I do, that the land the purpose of the landmarks commission is to promote the history and uh, economic development and tourism in the city. And I think in that regard. The existing zoning is an impediment to the future history and development of its of our history mm-hmm. and tourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel very strongly that uh, uh, this project should be developed and that we need to have economic development to support the museum and to support the historical activities of that have recently grown up in the in the area. Uh, which are, in a sense, centered on the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. Or that's certainly what we we are promoting and uh, will continue to promote. And I gather that at this hearing, some people were surprised that uh, a historian, Kenneth Jackson, and also two public officials, uh, the Manhattan Borough President and a city council member, uh, spoke more or less in favor of the Hughes proposal. Yes, well, I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised that Kenneth Jackson did. Mr. Jackson, I think, gave an eloquent speech uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that, look, New York City is in a, we're in a highly competitive international environment, and our future will relate to tourism and uh, education and uh, uh, even more so than finance. And, and if we're going to be competing with places like uh, London, like Paris, like... Uh, Malaya, uh, Hong Kong, you know, we have to develop, it's very important that we develop our historical resources and not let this this, uh, restrictive zoning impede us. Uh, Now, I think that it was a surprise to some, not necessarily to me, that that, uh, Gail Brewer, who's the Manhattan Borough President, who would presumably have to be responsive to the voters in the area and and the Margaret Chin, who's been the longtime uh, uh, city councilman, would also support the, the, the project. I can tell you, I personally have worked very closely over the last five years on our July 4th parades and other things with, with both of those public officials, both Gail Brewer and Margaret Chin. And I, I suspect they, they came to a, uh, intellectually to our point of view that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have to move forward and, and the future of Lower Manhattan, in my view, and I suspect theirs, is as, as a very significant tourist area and a very significant educational area. It hasn't been recognized by that fully. But, you know, that's what our organization has been trying to do with projects like the uh, Saratoga-Yorktown celebration, naming of Evacuation Day, the naming of the uh, synagogue in Lower Manhattan, and we've got others. So, uh, uh, you know, I think this is a critical project, from, our, from my point of view. You've got 
another story in the works. Maybe we could just tease that a little bit. Um, you've just done an article uh, for New York Almanac about the uh, very um, controversial uh, early American uh, political and military leader, Aaron Burr. And uh, we'll talk with you about that in a few weeks. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think Aaron Burr, there some, to me, uh, very direct par- parallels between the impeachment trial of Aaron Burr, and the, which he was acquitted, and the recent impeachment trial of Donald Trump. I look forward to discussing it further. Our guest has been Jim Kaplan, an attorney and a founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. His article on South Street Seaport recently appeared in New York Almanac. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.